Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mr. Gadget. And the time has come uh, for me to speak out in regards to some of the technological greats, the founding fathers, if you will, of the technological age, uh, the early innovators in technologies that are passing. And as we all know, we've had uh, several of those uh, technological leaders pass in recent times. And I have actually recorded some shows that I ended up uh, not actually saving because in some cases, some of these technological leaders have caused a certain amount of, shall we say, strife and disagreement in terms of what people were saying uh, about these gentlemen. But it is time to talk about someone who has affected your life and has, in fact, through the years, affected the lives of literally millions of people around the world. And in this particular case, you've probably never actually heard of him. I know I have, but he has dramatically affected my life. Because basically, without the, the ideas that this gentleman came up with and what he invented, I would literally not be the, the same tech geek, Mr. Gadgets, uh, that I am today. And, of course, I am speaking of the passing of Edgar Bilcher, who was the inventor of the acoustic suspension uh, loudspeaker and thusly literally made high fidelity in the home what it was. Now, it's kind of hard for you to realize, I know, if you are uh, of the younger set, exactly how important this was because you've literally lived your entire life with the fruits of Edgar Bilcher's labor. But back in the day when he first came up with these ideas and he was a TV repairman and built stereo uh, cabinets and uh, built hi-fi stereos for people, uh, during this time frame, there were basically the only time you had speaker enclosures that had really, really good bass response were those Klipsch-style horns that I have talked about in previous podcasts that uh, I, I regaled you with the story of the, the bachelor that I met in St. Louis. He had a six-foot-tall speaker in each corner of his room, and literally you would normally see those at movie theaters. But for home stereos, uh, and in fact this is pre-stereo, this would be monophonic hi-fi, uh, most of those enclosures and the radios of the day did not have enclosures. The back of the radio cabinet or the hi-fi cabinet was open. I actually happened to own a very lovely piece of furniture that is also a very lovely bit of electronic gear that I acquired in the mid-60s from uh, my father's boss, who was the sales manager here in the Kansas City area, and uh, his name was Mars Wurzberger. And uh, he, I had gone over to his house to help my dad do some work or something. There was some reason why I had been to his house. And I had admired, I had admired this radio because I was very infatuated with radios in the, in the 60s. And so towards the end of the 60s there, 68, 69, uh, Mars was retiring and he and his wife were moving and they were going to downsize. And he wasn't going to take the radio with him. And so he asked my father if I would like it. And 
Of course, I took it. It, it has an AM, FM. I think there's even a shortwave band for the radio. That's along the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side, there's a place for the turntable to fit in. And then you would plug the turntable into an auxiliary input, and you could have mono, hi-fi, as well as the AM, the FM. And as I said, I believe there's even shortwave there. And it's a lovely sounding device and has uh, a totally open speaker cabinet, though, down below. And there was not very good response from these systems, especially in the base, because in order to get the base that you needed, you needed to have an enclosure that was large enough to actually resonate at the frequencies needed for the base. And I'm not sure that there was, there was probably some biasing and there were some tone controls and things like that where people would try to boost the bass electronically. But it was a limiting factor. And even this was a rather large cabinet. I mean, it was a standard size uh, radio cabinet of the day, and most of the high fives would be a large piece of furniture that would be in your living room. You could not have the bookshelf speakers that we all know today. And the acoustic discovery right, that, that Mr. Vilcher came up with was the fact, through experimentation, uh, he proposed that having an enclosure and having a speaker that had a ring of rubber around it uh, so that they could deal with the sound pressures involved, it would kind of act like a spring to help in, in uh, maintaining the acoustic... Uh, factor of the, the speaker involved and give much better bass response from a smaller size cabinet. And indeed, it did. You have never heard of him, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure, or I, I'm, I'm posturing, because he was not one of those people who was out there in the limelight a lot. He did come up with several interesting ideas, however. Uh, in addition to this whole idea of the bass response uh, with the, the speaker and, and the invention of the, the uh, sealed uh, speaker systems that could be small enough to fit on a bookshelf, uh, he also then came up with the idea of the dome tweeter, because previous to that there was only one speaker, and it was doing the high frequencies as well as the low frequencies. Well, he improved the low frequencies with the acoustic suspension, and then he moved on to improving the high frequencies also by having a specially designed uh, speaker just for those high frequencies. In addition to that, there was a problem with rumble from the turntables. Back in the day, of course, uh, children, we did not have CDs. We had these things called long playing records or LPs. Uh, people refer to them as albums. Some people still do. Uh, they usually uh, would be on a turntable that went at 33 and a third. RPM. Where they come up with that exactly, I'm not sure. But 33 and a third RPM was where you how you would run the record for it to sound properly. There were also smaller records that would only have a single song on them, uh, and those were 45s, and they were called 45s because they would spin at 45 RPM, revolutions per minute. There were also some older, uh, usually non-stereo, older records that were produced at 78 RPM. And uh, there were a few of those that I've owned through the years. I had various turntables that had the multiple speeds. Sometimes there would only be 45 and 33 and a third, and uh, the more expensive ones would also have the 78. And as I say, those are usually monophonic. 
and it, it's hard to explain how much this is affected because it literally has allowed the the sound uh, industry, the hi-fi industry, to go beyond just the purview of a few people that could afford a very expensive pieces of furniture that also were essentially uh, extended versions of uh, radios in their homes and provide a more musical-oriented rather than the more talk-oriented of radio of the day. A lot of radio back then was not necessarily music. It was uh, radio plays, uh, pre-television, and that this was uh, how they were bringing uh, entertainment into the home. Now, another aspect of this to keep in mind is not only was there this whole aspect of the uh, possibility of having smaller sets of electronics that would give you good sound into the home, but the reproduction of the sound. As I mentioned, the 33 and a third record was an improvement on the fidelity, and the stereo would give you the uh, impression of having the orchestra or band or uh, whoever you were listening to spread out across the room as if they were on a stage, things coming from the left-hand side, things coming from the right-hand side. We had a talk earlier about uh, binaural recordings and other methodologies to give you accurate stereo reproduction. Pre-computers, there were basically three types of electronics in the home. Okay? If you were really, really techy, so if you were a Linux and Android type <laughs> in today's world, let's say, if you were the, the super geeky, super techy person, you were a radio operator, and you were building, uh, in some cases, your own transmitters. Uh, initially, they had to build their own receivers, too, but by the 60s, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the receivers were actually uh, mostly pre-built by manufacturers uh, because they were a bit more sophisticated than the average ham radio operator wanted to uh, endeavor to produce, but uh, a lot of building of their own transmitters was going on. Uh, if you were, let's say, the people who were more into design, uh, more fashionable uh, and uh, things like that, uh, uh, that's the approximate equivalent in today's world of what I would say was the uh, audiophiles, the uh, audiophiles, the hi-fi stereo people, uh, and the type of equipment. I can prove it. The most expensive stuff was Macintosh. It's spelled differently. Uh, and then uh, the average Windows person would be equated to the television that was in your home. All of these involved tubes. Real electronics glow. Okay? <laughs> and uh, there were actually tube testers that you could find at the grocery store and at the... Uh, the drugstore even uh, to test tubes and you would go in and you would run a test on the tube, you'd dial something according to a book based upon the numbers on the tube and it would test, uh, you know, what the currents were that it was measuring. Oh, yes, you got a bad tube, you need to do one. There would even be uh, a set of drawers underneath that would have the tubes that they would sell you and then you would go back. Now, if you were a Windows Power user, you were confident enough to open up the back of your TV set. Had to be careful, though, because they're very high voltages in a TV CRT. And uh, so if you were a power user, you could test your own tubes. Otherwise, you'd have to have a TV repairman come out to your house 
or you'd have to take your TV in. Uh, down where my grandmother lived in, in the hills, the Ozark Hills, where my uh, parents grew up as dirt poor hillbillies, uh, there was a lady on the, on the road out to the main highway, Route 66, that repaired TVs for everybody in several counties around there. Just a little place up on the ridge there on the, on the road out there to the highway. And somewhere along the line, she had a dad for electronics, and she repaired pretty much everybody's TV when it went bad. This was a time frame where you actually repaired things. You did not just throw them away and buy new. And there were lots of things that were involving tubes, most of those really good stereos. And when I got involved in, in music in college and got really serious about sound, uh, there was a lot of this equipment that was available to me. You talk about reproduction, there was actually the, the invention of the reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, which was also part of this whole by stereo movement, was another innovator who was a soldier. And uh, when he was listening late at night, he was an intelligence officer, when he was listening late at night, he was hearing orchestral performances from German radio station, and it was midnight. And how were they getting an orchestra to play at midnight? And he ended up, during the invasion of Germany, going to investigate this, and found that they had wire recorders. So it wasn't tape reel-to-reel. -reel. It was literally wire that was being drug across a magnetic head, and the changes of the magnetic flux in the wire was where the sound was coming from, and it sounded better than the equivalent 78 records. He knew it was not a record because of the background hit, background noise of the record, and he was not hearing that. And he took that idea and literally some of those machines broken apart and shipped back to California and founded MPEG, the first reel-to-reel. Uh, -reel. And reel-to-reel -reel was a major portion of this whole stereo uh, hi-fi kind of set. You not only had records but you also had a reel-to-reel -reel stereo recorder that you could record your own recordings and even playback recordings that other people had made. By the time I came along in the uh, early part of the 70s and started getting interested in all this, some of that was available used, and uh, there were still new hi-fi stores here in Kansas City. Uh, I talked about some of the stores. Uh, Burstein Appleby was a local electronics store. It sold uh, stereo equipment and things like that. Uh, I talked about building speaker systems and, uh, and uh, the local uh, electronics place that uh, sold the speakers they would use to build speakers. And, of course, Radio Shack had a tube checking station as well as more tubes than you could get at the local uh, drugstore. They had a wider selection of tubes. So if they didn't have it there, you'd take it to the Radio Shack store and you could uh, test it out or a Burstein Appleby store. Uh, various electronic stores that were available there, and they all made big business in this. And it was still somewhat furniture-related, because even when these were separate uh, components, instead of all being built into one big cabinet, uh, they were still usually in a wooden cabinet and were a, a, a piece of, not furniture, but, but something that you could put on a shelf in your living room, and it would look good in your living room with the rest of your furniture and things like that. And I purchased uh, some of these things that were tubes. Uh, I had a chance once, I'm fairly certain, and I probably just missed by about four or five minutes being able to purchase a Macintosh amplifier uh, at a sale. I just didn't get down there in time. Uh, but I very, I've owned various tube amps through the years and have quite enjoyed them. There, there's a different sound in tube amplifiers 
Uh, some people call it a softer sound. There's there's more distortion. You, you cannot argue that it is a cleaner sound. Uh, transistors and ICs have a cleaner sound in terms of just measurement of distortion, but there, there's something quite pleasant about the tune sound. I'm not talking about overdriving of tunes, the way a lot of guitar uh, amplifiers are overdriven for rock and roll guitars, uh, guitarists and things like that. I, I'm just talking about the general sound of it coming out. The, the distortion itself is a pleasant kind of distortion. And the other thing about tunes is it's much more forgiving when you press your luck and you go above what the tube is normally thinking is uh, what the limits of the the uh, the limits of the electronics are. So when you're pushing it on the tube amplifier, it fails more gracefully than the rather jagged kind of sound that one gets from semiconductor electronics when you push it. Uh, would you turn the amp up to 11, as it were? Uh, and, and I quite enjoy the tube sound. I suppose in my old age, I might actually try to acquire a tube amplifier. I tended to prefer, ironically, uh, less so the uh, acoustic suspension totally enclosed and more. They still have the acoustic suspension, but it was partially ported because those were a little bit more efficient and less uh, wattage to acquire the same amount of sound pressure level. We talked about that in a previous show. And uh, so the, the, I kind of tended towards ported rather than totally enclosed, just because the amplifiers that you needed to drive it to a certain pressure level were a little bit cheaper there in terms of less wattage involved. And there's something hard to explain about those tubes glowing in uh, a darkened room, uh, not totally dark, but just a, a darkened room and listening to the stereo. It, it's, it's just, it was kind of a total experience and a very pleasant one. And tube amplifiers are still much preferred in the, you know, people who are still serious about hi-fi. And there are some people who are still very serious about hi-fi uh, by LP records, mostly instead of CDs, still have very expensive turntables. <laughs> One of the problems, I don't think I mentioned this before. Sorry if I'm repeating. Another problem that uh, that uh, Mr. Vilcher solved was the turntable itself. There was a lot of rumble because the turntables of the time would directly run the, the turntable. So there was a motor, and the motor was directly connected to the spindle, and then there would be something that would uh, cause that uh, motor to spin at precisely the 33 and a third or 45 or things like that, even where sometimes there were gears involved. Either of those kinds of things involved a lot more rumble and added noise. And uh, the, the cartridges uh, were either ceramic cartridges or the more expensive stereos would use magnetic cartridges and uh, these can pick up noise because literally the, the, the vibration of the very narrow little pin, the little stylus in the grooves was where the sound came from, and any kind of shaking of that uh, in low frequencies that wasn't part of the music would still be transferred to the speakers, the ironically more, uh, more effective bass speakers that Mr. Vilcher invented. And uh, so... In the process, 
he came up with a belt drive system, a rubber belt, that would go around the edge of the turntable or a flywheel in the middle of the turntable, and by isolating the motor from the turntable, then that rumble went away, and so he improved turntables and things like that. Now, years later, people came up with direct drive that was not going to cause the rumble, and so then the more expensive turntables uh, would go back to being direct drive rather than being uh, driven by a rubber belt. So these things, you know, ebb and flow. Very serious, though, people are still into Macintosh amplifiers and other types of tube equipment, and uh, it's still a very expensive hobby. Uh, and uh, I saw some of that, actually, when I was in our Bangkok office uh, for a month a few years ago, and I would nose my way around various types of emporiums and, and uh, shopping centers that would feature electronics, uh, go figure, and one of them was a very serious stereo shop, not a home theater kind of a shop, but stereo equipment. Uh, the reproduction of music through two speakers, not 5.1s and 7.1s and however many numbers dot ones. Uh, and I think probably most of the, if there are any stereo stores that have survived, they probably have survived by making the transition to home theater now, because that's usually what people are interested in. Uh, the biggest one here in Kansas City, I was talking about Bernstein Appleby and, and Radio Shack and all these that sold them. The Premier, there were several different uh, uh, hi-fi stores that I bought some of this used equipment. I would go in and I would drool. Uh, I wished on the student salary I could, you know, student's money I could afford, uh, you know, some of the new equipment and things like that. But the biggest one and the best one and the preeminent one here was David Beatty Audio. David Beatty was on Westport Road, which was the old road that went out of Westport and was basically the starting point for the Oregon Trail, the Santa Fe Trail, and the uh, California Trails, all of which uh, led off from the Kansas City area here from about the 1830s, 1820s, 1830s on. Those trails, uh, the river bent uh, at this point, and it wasn't any use going farther upriver because you weren't getting any closer to where you wanted to be. So you got off, you bought your wagon, and you bought your supplies, and you headed west. And the old Westport Road led out from there, and he was right along the Westport Road. Um, it was an amazing place to go see. Uh, there were salesmen there that were certified and I swear it was probably a certification that they made up just for David Beatty Audio because I never heard about it anywhere else. But, you know, they were very knowledgeable. They were very knowledgeable on the equipment. They were very knowledgeable on people's, you know, applications of the equipment. And it was kind of a specialized thing. You, you had some people would buy certain types of equipment. Uh, they would mix and match things. And you would have a preamplifier for your turntable that did special kinds of preamplification and then you fed that into quite often a separate, well, there was a preamplifier to go from your magnetic cartridges to your uh, level of sound that you could feed into either what was called an integrated amp, which was preamplifier and power amplifier in one, or a separate preamplifier. So there was a kind of a, a little box uh, that you would have of electronics to do that. Some people didn't even like that 
to be in the integrated amplifier or the preamplifier, they would have an extra separate box just for that purpose. And then the preamplifier had all the knobs and the indicators, the VU meters and things like that. Uh, in an integrated amp, that also then had the power amplifier. But the really serious people would have a separate stereo preamplifier with the knobs and indicators and everything like that, and then feed that into a separate amplifier that uh, might have been a, a pair of mono amplifiers that were matched exactly, or a stereo amplifier. And those were beautiful. Those were practically pieces of art. I mean, the preamplifiers would have a nice look to them, quite often wooden cadetry and things like that. But the actual power amplifiers that you would use, as especially the Macintoshes, but uh, quite a few of the other ones also, they would be chrome instead of just a plain metal chassis. There would be no covering on anything except any kind of high-voltage capacitors and power supply, and that would be in some type of metal enclosure for that towards the back. But all the tubes, it would be a chrome chassis, and all the tubes would be exposed and glowing, and it was really kind of a, a work of art. Uh, and I, I miss glowing electronics in many ways. I suppose I could acquire some of that a bit cheaper. Uh, I'm not made of money here, even in my old age. I'm uncomfortable. And uh, I could probably uh, acquire maybe a, a tube amplifier uh, if I really wanted to go in that direction. But it's it's hard for you to understand, but this was all the way things were before computers came along. And the reason why I mentioned before, basically I wouldn't be the tech that I am today, is that's how I got into computers. As I was a music major, and I was interested in the recording studio and the reproduction of audio. And so I was heavily into the hi-fi stereo uh, that basically Mr. Vilcher's uh, inventions made those possible. And uh, so that was a big part of my initial kind of the initial tech that I acquired and things like that. This was in the very, very early days of digital and computers coming along with the digital audio that was going to revolutionize everything. And of course, it did eventually. It just took several years later and by then, I was more a computer programmer rather than it being involved in the digital audio kind of things. And so it goes. Uh, Mr. Vilcher did have a partner in terms of the commercialization of this. And the reason why you have seen, these, uh, seen this invention and it was there to be sized and thusly to affect your life in a positive way was the, uh, a student of his named Henry Floss. You may have heard of Mr. Kloss. He was the more visible, I think, of the two. Uh, he basically took the ideas and the research uh, that Mr. Vilcher came up with and found ways to efficiently manufacture that. They formed a company called Acoustic Research, which made some of the preeminent speakers of the time all the way up to the 70s when I was involved and uh, were some of the best loudspeakers that one could purchase. And uh, also then... He founded several other ventures along the way, including uh, Cambridge Soundworks. Uh, these are all in Massachusetts, because that's where Mr. Kloss lived. And uh, even Tivoli Audio, which to this day makes a extremely good table radio, which you can also buy 
a uh, attachment to be able to hook your iPhone or iPad up and use the speaker uh, in that. Uh, and it's it's expensive, but has some of the best sound you can get in a small uh, tabletop radio. Uh, you can hook up an extra speaker for stereo, and as I say, you can buy a uh, rather expensive uh, add-on to be able to dock your iPhone or iPad. Uh, sorry, iPhone or uh, iPod, and uh, have your music going through that table radio. So even to this day, the the five by one speaker system that you have in your home theater is basically the brainchild and the descendant of Mr. Edgar Milcher and Henry Kloss, who helped uh, to provide the world with better living through music. We are losing some of the pioneers in the electronic world, some of the giants. Some we know their names and some we do not. If you have a story about one of these people, you should record it. You can call in the way I do. You can record it on some electronic device and send it in. Uh, I'd be especially interested if anybody has any personal stories uh, knowing some of these great giants of the industry that are passing. And I did notice on the calendar today that Ken has very little scheduled, so I'll probably call in another show just in case that the well runs totally dry. But we need your story. You have a story, and uh, you need to, to call in or record it and send it in so that we can all hear your story too. This is Mr. Gadgets, uh, enjoying my electronic device and enjoying my electronic lifestyle, and I'm hoping you're having a good time as you go out on that trail, like the Oregon, the California, and the Santa Fe Trail, out here blazing the way so that you don't have to be a ham radio operator and highly technical. You could even come along if you uh, like things that are fancy and have some extra money or are even just your average Joe who can barely unplug a tube and plug it in again to get the TV to work right. And I thought that was a pretty good uh, model there, a pretty good analogy to the present day. You be careful out here, and I'll be blazing the trail ahead of you. Bye now. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.